Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to spooky season. It's finally spooky season, what we live for. Yes. And if you're new to listening to True Creeps, just know we are spooky all year. So you are welcome to hang all year long. Yeah, we we would love for you to creep with us all year. Absolutely. And today we picked this topic because I think a lot of us are in the same boat, right? We're all watching scary movies to get ready for Halloween. Yes. What a better way to spend October than watching your, what, same five movies every year? Yeah, I mean, I think I try to, like, watch whatever's new that's out. If you've watched Malignant, please come talk to me. I have a lot of feelings and opinions about it. (laughs) I won't say either way because I want you to, like, really experience it. But I have a lot of feelings and opinions that I need to talk to with people and or Squid Game. But I like to check out new stuff. But I think I try to, like, pop around a little bit because... I grew up watching horror movies like just like you did, right? So some of these things, some of them, like I've forgotten a lot of what was in there. Like I know like the core story, but like the details are kind of gone. So it's kind of fun to watch something again and be like, huh, I completely forgot about that. Well, today we are going to be talking about one movie in particular, and it is a worldwide favorite, I'd say. It's on a lot of people's lists. It's iconic. And the movie is Scream. As often as I've seen this movie, right? I remember watching it when I was younger. I remember watching it just, it was like the go-to movie. It was one that I would rent at Blockbuster all the time. Yeah. Like, this is the one. As much as I've watched this damn movie, I did not know that it was based on a real story. Also did not know that. That was very surprising to me. It's not surprising that it could have been, right? It's a slasher movie. And slasher movies often, they lend themselves to be based on a true story. Because like, right? Like, true crime all year. So it makes sense, but it never occurred to me. And I don't remember that being in the media a lot, right? No. And I feel like now when a movie comes out and it has some basis in reality, it's in all the interviews with the director, right? They're like, oh, yeah, I was inspired by ba 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 And we even talked about it in our Belangelo Forest episode that Wolf Creek was based on Ivan Malat. Yeah. Just interesting. So we were very excited to learn more about the basis of Scream. Yeah. So we have a little bit about the movie, a lot of what it was based off of and how horrible that situation was. And then we also have some stories that happened after the movie. Yeah. I loved the idea of like what happened next. Yeah. Because you don't often see that in movies, right? Exactly. Yeah. Especially for horror movies. And you would hope that it wouldn't cause more. Right. Yeah. You would certainly hope that it wouldn't cause more, but it did. And it's not the movie's fault, but like it's interesting that the attitudes that you see in Billy and Stu, a lot of young men really identified with them. Yeah. And that's horrifying because they were fucks. They were shitbirds. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start out with the beginning of the thought of the movie. (laughs) Inception. Inception. Yes. The inception of Scream. 
Exactly. So on March 9th of 1994, Ken Williamson decided, hey, I'm going to write a new horror movie. I'm going to call it Scary Movie, which we know what that ended up being later, right? (laughs) The mock version of Scream. I loved the first one, right? My germs. We all know that. We've all wanted to dip our hand in a bowl of mashed potatoes and scream my germs. And if you haven't, then you haven't lived. My germs. With this little chick in my arm. That's a strong hand. Oh, that's my strong hand. don't we all have a strong hand though right like one of them has to be stronger than the other my strong hand please teach your child rather than to say my dominant hand to say my strong hand (laughs) i love that originally that's what he was going to call scream is scary movie but when he was thinking about writing this movie he didn't know what to write about so he's hanging out and a show came on that was discussing the Gainesville Ripper. And as he's watching this, he notices, oh, my window's open. And so then he walks around his house and he's just making sure everything's shut because, you know, watching that, he's like, what if that happened? That could happen to anyone. So he's walking around, he's shutting everything. And then he's like, oh, my gosh, an intruder coming inside the home is really a frightening concept. And that's where the beginning stages of Scream were born. From what I saw, it was originally just written as a short movie. And it sounds like it's like that beginning part of the movie. You know, the the whole phone conversation. Mm-hmm. I want to say that that was going to be just the short film. I've seen a couple different varying articles, though. But it would make sense because that's totally a different vibe of the movie, right? Yeah. And then the studio's like, wait a minute, we're going to order a full length film. I love that. Then Scream came out in 1996. Did you see it when it came out? Yeah, I believe I did. Okay, so I did too. Or at least when it came out to uh, VHS, I think, or DVD, I don't remember. But I remember renting it. Within the first year of it being out, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember renting it when it was on the main Blockbuster Mall. Yes. Oh, yeah. The expensive, bougie part. The expensive wall. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, look, I hate scrolling through streaming services to try to figure out what I want to watch. But I would gladly go peruse around a blockbuster that smelled faintly like plastic and popcorn. (laughs) Right? Yeah, but you'd have to put on pants and actually go somewhere. I think it would be worth it. Really? Yeah. Also, the blockbuster that was near us was like literally a half mile from my house. Oh, we had a journey. No, mine was not an adventure. It was like right down the street. But also within a year of it coming out, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. And Amanda's a year younger than me. So that means I was, what, 11 when it came out? No, nine. No, I was nine when it came out. Yeah. Which means you were eight. Who has business watching this? And we were like, scream. (laughs) Scream's the way to go. And so I think Amanda and I both did rewatches. Just excited for spooky season. And I was like, this came out in 1996. And they full on gut Drew Barrymore within the first like 10 minutes of the movie. And it's not like a cute coy kind of gore. It's like she full on has her guts hanging out pretty rough yeah and i'm like who was letting children watch this <laughs> my parents your parents love you guys yeah i don't know what was happening but i think this is when matthew lillard too became one of my favorites is from scream i love him and then slc punk happened and i was bought in for life and then 13 ghosts 13 ghosts baby oh 
So, so good. So good. Okay. So let's talk about then, Lindsay. I'm going to tell you about the Gainesville Ripper because it's horrendous. And I don't know how in all of this true crime obsession that I didn't know about the Gainesville Ripper. You know, I love whenever a murderer is named a Ripper. You, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, it's not just Jack the Ripper. It's also a Vampire Diaries reference, which I'm not ashamed to say that I enjoyed. <laughs> So the Gainesville Ripper is Danny Rowling, and he was born May 26, 1954, in Louisiana. His mother was only 19 at the time. Her name's Claudia, and his father was a police officer and a war veteran, and his name's James. James is said to have had some PTSD from being in the war and possibly another mental disorder as well. James was super controlling. He was violent at times, and he was both mentally and physically abusive to the family. Danny also had a younger brother named Kevin. Danny started to get abused around one years old when his father didn't think he was crawling properly. Did you know there's been studies done where they talk about the frequency or rate of serial killers and how it typically coincides with a generation that's been to war? Really? Interesting. Yeah. So that like parents will come home, abuse their children, and some of those children will like go on to do terrible things. And it's just kind of like the ebb and flow of it. That's horrible. Yeah. Well, and just the fact that he was so angry that the child wasn't crawling properly. One years old. That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So Claudia tried to escape the marriage, but she always returned. And I'm just going to kind of go through some of the big bullet points of his life until we get to the cruel acts that he ended up doing. So Danny failed third grade, and it was due to too many absences. Around the same time, his mom had a really bad nervous breakdown. And school counselor said that Danny, quote, suffered from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. So this is third grade. As a young teen, Danny really got into music and it helped him cope with his father. He liked to play guitar and he also sang. And this is a big thing to remember because this comes back later. Around that same time, his mom was committed because she slit her wrists. Yeah. After this, he picked up drugs and alcohol. At around 14 years old, he was caught peeping in a neighbor's house and his dad beat him for it. Danny attended a church and struggled to hold down a job. He then enlisted. Also, around the same time, he developed multiple personalities as a defense from his reality. This is where he says it started. Interesting. This is still up in the air, too. Well, so and I think what's interesting, too, is the existence of multiple personality disorder is debated. Exactly. Like among mental health professionals. So like, especially when you're looking at the origin story of somebody who commits atrocities, I feel like it's kind of like a question mark after whenever you hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that that's actually discussed a lot at the end of his case as well. So also he attempted suicide several times during his adolescence. Just to give you his background, that's kind of how he started his life. In 1972, Danny was kicked out of the Air Force for drug possession. He went on to live with his grandfather and he received some stability through a church. He got married to O'Mather Halco and they had a daughter together. They were together about four years. And what happened is he started to do some of the same abusive behaviors that his father did to him and his family to his new family. So they ended up separating. He also at one point threatened to kill her. So around right now is when some horrible things start. So when they got divorced, he raped a woman that looked kind of like his ex-wife. He also committed several armed robberies throughout the South. So it wasn't in just one particular place. He kind of moved around. Yeah. In late 1977, 
he killed a woman in a car accident. He was arrested in Jackson, Georgia in 1979. And throughout the 80s, he was kind of in and out of jail in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, all for armed robberies and other petty crimes. He traveled the country essentially stealing what he wanted and sexually assaulting women. Oh, I hate him. Yeah, he's pretty awful. On November 4th of 1989, he was fired from his job at a restaurant. That same night, he broke into a Shreveport home and he murdered a 24-year-old woman named Julie Grissom, her 8-year-old nephew named Sean, and her 55-year-old father named Tom. They weren't found, though, until the 6th when a neighbor noticed that their cars hadn't moved throughout the whole weekend. Julie's body had bite marks and was arranged on the bed with her legs spread. She also had tape residue on her body and vinegar was used to clean up. So to clean around her body. Remember this detail because it's kind of an odd one. Vinegar. Vinegar. Mm -hmm. Just that he cleaned it up like he tried to clean up her body. I'm guessing to not leave DNA. Yeah, I just very natural cleaning. Yeah, it wasn't bleach. Yeah. So this turned into a cold case. No one knew who did it. No one got arrested for it. There is one little part I'll bring up that just broke my heart. So Sean's dad, I watched an interview with him because remember, it was her nephew, the eight-year-old. But Sean's dad was talking about the murder and he had just gotten married the week before the murders happened. And he had just returned home from his honeymoon. It was the first Monday back to work when he got the call. That's terrible. Yeah. Like happiest time of his life now is the worst. The worst. Exactly. But just watching his emotions during that interview made me so sad. Yeah. In May of 1990, Danny got into an argument with his father and he shot James in the stomach and the head. However, his father survived, but he lost the use of one of his eyes and his ear. And right after this argument, Danny immediately left home. Danny changed his identity by stealing papers from someone's house. So as of July of 1990, he was also going by the name Michael Kennedy Jr. And I've only seen that in a couple places. It's strange that he went by this name, but you'll see why his actual name comes up again. In 1990, this is where the Gainesville murder spree started. He set up a campsite behind the University of Florida in a wooded area. So he's just living in this campsite behind the university. And from the pictures I've seen, it's a pretty heavily wooded area. So like it was pretty easy for him to get around without being seen. On October 24th, he broke into the home of freshman Christina Powell and Sonia Larson, and he stabbed and raped both of them. Holy hell. Yeah. All of this is hard. And when you think about it with Scream, right, it's a little different. Like the premise of Scream, he wanted revenge. Yeah. But with this one, he was just going after these poor college kids. In Scream, there were some casualties that had nothing to do with anything, really, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, like the premise of Scream and the revenge, the revenge like happened before the movie. So it kind of ends up like they wanted to keep killing, in my opinion. That's kind of how I saw it. It's like they had a reason, but like. Well, why they they went after one particular person for so long, though. Yes. Yes. Why they went after Sydney. Sid if you will. Yeah. So these two women, they were living in an off-campus apartment and the complex was called Williamsburg Apartments and they had literally just moved in. Their bodies were found after their parents were unable to get a hold of them. And since Christina's parents lived a little bit closer, they decided that they'd go to the apartment. Well, they show up, no one answers. 
So they get a maintenance worker to knock on the door and help them. And since they didn't answer, the maintenance worker's like, okay, well, let me get my manager. And since you think something bad happened, let's get to the police here too. So, you know, everyone's here when I open this door. And so everyone's there. They open the door and then that's when they find the bodies. So literally the parents are there. When they discovered the bodies, though, the apartment manager and the maintenance worker went in first with the officer. The manager just came out immediately, just very quickly, right? Yeah. The maintenance worker, though, starts running and he's yelling, oh, God, oh, God, as he ran down the stairs. And then he immediately threw up. So with this being what their parents or what Christina's parents were watching, you just know, oh, my gosh, my daughter lives here. And a grown man is running and vomiting. What did he see? Yeah. So Sonia's body was sort of posed in a way that caught the attention of officers because her hair was fanned out. So obviously she didn't do that to herself. It was just fanned out around her. How bizarre. So that's another kind of similarity between what happened and then Scream. Because if you remember in Scream, a lot of them were posed in weird ways. So the beginning. Yeah, with Drew Barrymore. With Drew Barrymore, right? She's hung in the tree for her parents to find. Mm -hmm. And then I know some of them were kind of like theatrical killings too when the girl gets in the garage door and all of that too but this just took it to a whole nother level and it'll get significantly worse yeah so the following day which is august 25th 1990 krista hoyt was murdered and she was a college student that was an aspiring police officer she was actually working part-time with the alchua county sheriff's office while she attended school So the thing is, police knew her, like her friends were police officers. So when she didn't show up for work the night of August 26th, they dispatched officers to go check out her home. When they arrived, there is one interview with one of the officers that was there. And they essentially were looking through the window, I want to say, or like one of her glass doors with their flashlight. Mm -hmm. And one officer's like, I don't want you to look in there. I don't want you to see her the way that I just saw her. So she had been raped and stabbed to death. He had left her severed head on a bookshelf facing her body that was also propped up on the bed. So there's more details that'll come in a few minutes of this. But can you imagine the time that it takes to do that? Like, why would you do that? Because you are proud of what you did. It's disgusting. It's awful. And remember, these are college students. They're kids for the most part, right? Yeah. I consider them a kid. The older I get, the older kids get for me. We're so old. (laughs) Yeah. So news started spreading at this point, right? It's spreading across the university. Students were sleeping in groups, panic all around. And again, just like the movie, right? Remember the the kids all doing the party to stay together. And that's kind of what I thought of. Oh, here's another similarity. So on August 27th, he broke into the home of two 23-year-old students, also from the University of Florida, and he murdered them. Their names were Manuel Taboda and Tracy Paulus. And they were really close friends since high school, and they had just began living together. Manuel, or he went by Manny, was a former high school football player, and he actually tried to fight Danny. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to escape. Authorities believed that he was attacked first and stabbed multiple times, and then Tracy was raped and stabbed. Her body was also posed, and about two hours before the murders happened, Tracy was actually talking to one of her other friends. And her friend was like, please be safe. I love you. Have a good first day at school and call me tomorrow. Because she had been seeing the news of what was happening. And she was just so worried. Literally two hours before she was murdered. That was her conversation. I hate it. The next day, her friend couldn't get a hold of her. And she asked another friend to go check on her. Her friend called her screaming. I can't imagine like going to check on a friend and finding them in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just it's sad that 
this is their first day of school, you know, coming up. Yeah. And they should just be excited about school, not worrying that there's a serial killer on the loose. Yeah. And this, I mean, this sounds like it's straight from a movie. It is, right? Yeah. I mean, literally is now. Yeah. But I mean, it's that level of dramatic fuckery, you know? Right. So he also left tape residue on their bodies and he had used duct tape. So he'd use it and then he would remove it when he was done. They also found soap residue on their bodies. They believed, again, that he was trying to clean up any DNA that he might have left. A couple additional commonalities were found here. He entered all of these homes through back doors using a screwdriver and each home backed up to a wooded area. Remember, he was staying in the woods. Yeah. This allowed him to enter and leave without being noticed. Also, this is where they started to notice the women's bodies were being posed. So the panic continued. There were newspaper headlines and a curfew was put into place by the mayor. Some classes were suspended. Parents of students were moving their children out of the city and back home. Parents were calling the police station worried that they hadn't heard from their kid in hours. So I can't even imagine, you know, like any time you tried to call your kid at this point and they didn't answer immediately. This is where you went. Oh, for sure. So the students that stayed in town armed themselves with weapons, some including guns, other things that they could find. Gainesville police and the county sheriff's office called in outside agents to help with the investigation. Hardware stores sold out of their locks. At one point, even the National Guard was brought in. Officers were working in 12-hour shifts trying to just patrol and be available. Yeah. The media went nuts. Some of the media was even bribing officers to get information. So this is unfortunately how some of the information got leaked. For example, Krista Hoyt's family found out the details of what happened to her, including the beheading from a newspaper. I hate it, but I like we've talked about victims' families before and like the right to know and X, Y, Z. But if the media knows, the family should know. Just like period. Exactly. Yeah, they should not find out from a newspaper. Never. Another detail that happened the same day that they were assessing Krista Hoyt's crime scene, police responded to a bank robbery and it happened about half a mile away from her home. During the robbery, a teller slipped a red dye pack into the money bag. Later that evening, an officer noticed that a man was walking in a wooded area, and he tracked him to a campsite. The man, unfortunately, escaped somehow, but the officer found a screwdriver, a bag of red money, a gun, and a cassette player with a tape inside. This guy. They put all the stuff into evidence, but they didn't link that this campsite could be linked to the murders because they found a gun and not a knife. He couldn't possibly kill with another weapon. No. And just another infuriating detail is that they did not listen to this tape at this time. It was months later. So by this time, his campsite gets found. There's curfews, a lot more patrols. Danny skips town. So during this part, a student becomes a person of interest. His name is Ed Humphrey, and he was 18 years old. Many tips came in with Ed's name, and some of them were that he was a little violent, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Others were because he'd hang out in the woods in camo. So people are like, well, he's hanging out in wooden areas. You need to go get him. Just a casual woodland man. Mm-hmm. So he was also a University of Florida student, and he had once lived in the same complex as two of the victims. He had some erratic behavior, and he had been arrested for assaulting his grandmother. I mean, it was a really bad assault. He caused fractures and bruises to his grandmother. Jesus. So I could see why people would be like, it's him. And there's a few other things that'll come up. So he was known to carry knives, and he had been off of his medication. He was battling acute manic depression, and he was being held on a $1 million bond. 
When they searched his home, they found magazines about guns, knives, and girls. So they, in their heads, they're like, this is him. So because he likes knives and girls, for sure he's the killer. There's no gun even involved in these ones. So they believed that he could have been placed at some of the crime scenes. And also, remember, Danny skipped town, right? So they're like, yeah, well, the murder stopped once we arrested Ed. So there's that. I hate it. Mm -hmm. They also had a little bit of physical evidence, according to, they say, technology at the time, that would have placed him at some of the scenes, including fibers and hairs. However, I thought it was a very weird way that they said this. So there's a, an investigator named Don Maines. And he said during an interview, quote, they couldn't say definitely it was Ed's hair, but they couldn't say it wasn't technology back then. Technology. Yeah. What kind of hair they had. But they're like, could perhaps be his. We can't say it's not. So this is evidence. Weird, right? Is it evidence? <laughs> it's just the way that they said it, though. It's just technology of the time said that this could be evidence. Could be. I mean, well, hot damn. Yeah. Close case. Yeah. So here's something else, though. At the time, they were able to get the suspect's blood type through semen left at the crime scenes. The suspect was type B. However, Ed was type A. An FBI agent came in and took the information for VICAP, which Lindsay has told us about several times. You know, I love to talk about VICAP. Her face lit up when I said VICAP. It did. I was like, VICAP, you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the FBI gets the information, puts it in VICAP, and there's a match. Guess what matched? The Grissom murders back in Shreveport. Remember, she had been posed, there was tape residue, and he had cleaned up the body afterwards. But in that case, it was vinegar. Don Maines, the investigator I just told you about, went to Louisiana to compare the notes and found out exactly how similar the cases were. Most information wasn't released to the public, so they ruled out that it could possibly be a copycat killer. They found that the DNA from the Grissom case was also blood type B. Some people on the task force were still unsure, though, because they're like, well, we have someone in custody. So instead of like looking at the big scope of it, they're like, mm, we have someone. Yeah, no worries. We found our guy. Yeah. You know, law enforcement, how they love to do that. Yeah, well, in their slight defense, everything stopped once they arrested him, right? So it's like black and white. This stopped the murders. Not thinking like, no, he's still out there. He's still doing bad things. Well, but also like if you were a murderer, it might make sense for you to cool off when they've got somebody in custody because you could frame that person. Exactly. One could say it could be or it could not be. <laughs> My goodness. So during this in September, Danny goes on and robs a Winn-Dixie grocery store in Florida. You ever been to a Winn-Dixie? No, I haven't. I didn't. It sounds so stupid. <laughs> Names just so dumb. They're not bad, but they're not a Publix. And where I lived in Florida, there was like, they were next to each other, like literally next to each other. Isn't that a dog's name? Winn-Dixie? Isn't that a movie about a dog? It could be. I mean... Yes, because of Winn-Dixie is a movie and a book, it looks like. Yeah, I don't think grocery store. Well, it was a very brightly lit grocery store. <laughs> very bright. Okay. Well, he robbed one. So he was arrested after he crashed his getaway car after robbing him. So now with all this information, how did they finally tie this guy to all of these horrific crimes? There's a few reasons that they believed him to be a suspect. There was a woman named Cindy. And when she knew him, she went by Cindy Dobry in 1990 when she actually knew Danny. She heard about the murders and she immediately thought, oh my goodness, maybe it was Danny. She saw some news reports that linked the Gainesville murders to the ones that happened in Louisiana. 
She was at this time vacationing in Florida. So it was like, you know, the big headline. Yeah. She had met Danny at church. Apparently, Danny at one point had told her then husband, Stephen, during one of his visits to their home, that he liked to stab people. Stephen had come to her and said something like, Danny told me he has a problem. And then when she was like, well, what kind of problem? He was like, he likes to stick knives into people. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Those are two different approaches. One is, I enjoy a thing. Another is, I don't want to enjoy the thing. You feel me? No. So he's like, I have a problem. Oh, his friend was like, you've got a problem. Danny told her husband about this thing that he liked to do. Uh Uh-huh. And then Stephen's like, great. Okay, see you later. And then went, hey, wife. Okay. There's a problem here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because I was like, um, yeah, you're right. It is a problem. Can you imagine like you're just casually hanging out with someone and they're like, yeah, I really like to stab people. Like dead ass. Like. Right. So from what I understand, and there's not a ton of interviews I could find that included Stephen. I saw some with Cindy but not with Stephen. Okay. And it sounds like he told Stephen for whatever reason. And then Stephen's like, you know, probably just confused. Like, did I hear him right? Like, is this a thing? Is this real? And then he's like, okay, yeah, I think it is. So he's like, hey, Cindy, our our mutual friend from church is messed up and he shouldn't be over here anymore. And at first she's like, "Mm, no. So she kind of dismissed the thoughts because she didn't believe that he could be responsible for the Grissom murders. Fair. And like, how could you? Like someone you know? No, there's no way someone I know could do something that bad. So once she found out about the Gainesville murders in November of 1990, she contacted Crime Stoppers and said, hey, you need to go investigate Danny Rowling. So once they looked at his prior offenses and that he had shot his father months before the killing spree, they realized, oh, maybe he is responsible. And oh, maybe he's responsible for that bank robbery, too, that happened in the same area. That's when they finally decided, huh, we had some things from that campsite where the money was found. Let's take a look at these. And then they're like, there's a tape in here. Let's listen to this tape. So it took them a long time to listen to this tape. So what was on this tape? In the tape, he actually says his full name, Danny Harold Rowling. <laughs> As well as some songs. He talks about his family, his life, how to kill a deer. They believed that if they had just listened to this tape the day that they found it, they would have been able to find him three months earlier. Also, the tape had kind of a weird sign off. It said, I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I got something I've got to do. And they believe that it was possibly one of the murders. I just have a casual engagement. It's a murder I've been planning. Yeah, I listen. There's some pieces of the tape that you can find online. And like he's singing a song. It's just really random. And I don't know if it's because that's all they're letting us listen to. It's not actually cut this way. But he's singing a song and then he's just talking about how to kill a deer. And then, yeah, he says his full name. It's very strange. It's a very weird tape. I hate it. So Danny finally becomes the primary suspect. And he's fairly easy to find because he was already detained for the robbery of the grocery store. Authorities used DNA from an extracted tooth to link him to the Gainesville murders and the Shreveport murders. He had type B blood. Some people believe that maybe there was two killers. Maybe it was Danny and Ed at this point. On November 15th of 1991, Danny was charged with five counts of first degree murder for the Gainesville murders, and he was facing the death penalty. He pled not guilty. Before he could stand trial for the murders, he was convicted of federal bank robbery charges, too. (laughs) Casually. Just casually. So he was sent to Florida State Prison, and that's when he met another inmate named Bobby Lewis. 
There's also a lot about this guy. This guy has a pretty big history. But to shorten it, he was on death row for killing a drug dealer in the 70s and had escaped death row at one point. He was eventually caught and brought back. Lewis would later claim that Danny had told him many details about the murders and that he wanted to confess. Then Bobby Lewis decided, I'm going to write this five page letter outlining the details, which only the killer would have known, kind of to prove, hey, he did it. So investigators wanted to confirm the details with Danny, but he insisted, no, 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 no. I'm not going to confirm this stuff. I want Bobby to be present too. And to act as my mouthpiece. I hate him. Investigators sat down with both of them and reviewed the details on February 4th of 1993. Bobby would answer the questions for Danny and then they would have Danny confirm. And this was all caught on tape. And I want to say if he didn't know the answer to something that Danny would just like whisper to Bobby and then Bobby would say it. It's very strange. So strange. I don't like that. I don't like that. Yeah. So they even learned a couple more details about the murders. So at one point, Danny had returned to the crime scene after killing Krista Hoyt because he thought he might have left his wallet there. <laughs> what a what a fuck. You thought you left your wallet there? Yeah, he couldn't find his wallet. But this is this is the worst part. That's when he decapitated her is when he returned to the scene. He left her not decapitated. And then he's like, you know what? I could do more to her. I could be more awful. And then that's when he decided, oh, I'm going to pose her a different way and cut off her head. So and then another detail that we've learned at this point about the murder of Manny and Tracy is that Danny and Manny were fighting and Tracy came into the room as they were fighting and she ran into her room and she locked the door and he was able to break through it. Also, I guess what Tracy asked him is, you're the one, aren't you? Aww. And he responded, yeah, I'm the one. Does that give you like shivers, like chills? Yeah, it makes me nauseous because you can hear it in that moment. To me, it, it doesn't remind me of Scream, which is weird, but it should. It reminds me of the strangers. Oh, yeah. And they're like, why are you doing this? And they're like, because we can, which that is the scariest phrase. It is. In any horror movie, you can't convince me otherwise. Like, that one gets me. Uh, yeah, I can't watch that one. I, I think I've only seen it once or twice, and it's just like... It's really hard. One time's enough for that one. Yeah, yeah. So during the questioning, Bobby said that Danny told him that he had dealt with different personalities all of his life. And he told the investigator about two dark ones. One is... I'm, not, I'm probably not going to pronounce it right, because it's just Danny spelled backwards. Yanad. And he said that it's a bad person, but not quite that evil. And then there's also his other personality that he called Gemini. But this one was much more sinister. And he blamed pretty much all the murders on Gemini. Is this supposed to be like Zodiac killer? But like Zodiac was taken. So he like just went with like Gemini because that does not sound intimidating at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's more to this as, as we get into trial. So they were able to get the information about the Gainesville murders, but not the three from Shreveport at this time. So during this questioning. After this, authorities finally cleared Ed, though. They're like, OK, no, this guy did it. Ed's fine. In June of 1992, he began speaking with a woman named Sandra London, who later became his fiance. No, no. Oh, yeah. This is just going to get just. I refuse to accept this. All kinds of batshit crazy. Yes. So she was a writer and she focused primarily on serial killers' minds. They started talking via letters while he was in prison. And she claimed that after meeting him, she had feelings for him. That make you want to like throw up in your mouth a little. Your feelings are wrong. If one of my friends told me that, I would be like, well, you're broken. I'd be like, no, you don't. You're telling me all the people in the world and this is your person. No. 
Yeah. I think, I mean, from what I've read about her, it sounds like she just wants to make money and this is the easiest way because then she gets all of the details and all of the stories all to herself. You're right. So at one point, there's this video of one of the court appearances where he awkwardly sings to Sandra during court. It's very weird. In my head, I can only think of Heath Ledger singing to Julia Stiles and 10 Things I Hate About You. It was very awkward. It was very weird. So after all of this, right, like, so they kind of get together. Then anytime you wanted to talk to Danny, it had to go through Sandra. And she said, I have executive rights to a story during an interview. And it, it's sort of funny during this interview because the interviewer called her an agent. He's like, oh, so you're his agent. And she's like, no, no, no. I just have executive rights. And he's like, yeah, that's what an agent is. When you said she was like a person who studied this and wrote about it, I was like, hmm. So she helped him put together a book called The Making of a Serial Killer, The Real Story of the Gainesville Murders, included his confessions to the five murders, as well as some other capital crimes and some pictures that he drew while he was in prison. They later were sued by the state of Florida under the Son of Sam law. So Son of Sam law is designed to keep criminals from profiting from the publicity of their crimes. So he wasn't supposed to make money off of it. Neither was she. So at least like they got sued for being terrible, awful people. On February 15th of 1994, that's when the trial finally began. Before they could proceed with the case, though, Danny wanted to address the court. And he said, Your Honor, I've been running from first one thing and then another all my life. But there are some things you just can't run from. And this being one of those. And then he finally pled guilty. Day of trial. Yeah. Because he was facing the death penalty, the jury still was required to hear all of the evidence and, you know, make their recommendation on punishment, whether it be life in prison versus death. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he finally switches it. And, you know, I'm sure that threw all the lawyers off too. like, oh, I mean, it made it easier, but still like you still have to tweak everything you've been working on. So for sentencing, the jury listened to the testimonies of a few people, including his mother, who talked about how abusive his father was several psychiatrists and one of them talked about his alternate personality gemini who drove him to murder others discussed that a severe personality disorder was present but they believed that danny understood what he was doing during these crimes one of them even talked about how danny had saw the exorcist three and he got some ideas about gemini from it Ugh. So they're like, uh, no, 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 no. He watched Exorcist 3. I saw that he, you know, saw it during this time. And then he's like, oh, wait, they mentioned this Gemini thing. And then that might be where he got the idea for it. Who who can know? Because he says that the multiple personalities started when he was younger. The jury unanimously found Danny guilty of first degree murder on all five counts in March. After this, Manny's brother, his name's Mario, and I just love him for this. He stood up and he shouted, you're going down in five. Do you understand that? In less than five years. We have the last say. We will prevail. Our children's names will be remembered over him. And the judge ordered him to be removed from the court. Later, with ABC News, Mario told them that he did that because he had read that serial killers like to be in control and he wanted to have the last word over him. I fucking love it. Right? I love it. So he like yelled in court. Yeah. But it was like, yeah, no, he got the last say. So ultimately, he was given the death sentence. On October 25th of 2006, Danny Rowling was put to death by lethal injection. Before his death, he spoke to a pastor and he gave him a note. The note admitted to the Grissom murders. In his final moments, he sang a religious hymn. There is a pretty big memorial for the Gainesville victims. It's actually like a graffiti covered wall in the city and it's maintained by the fraternities of the University of Florida. 
And it's pretty much the only part of the wall that's been unchanged. And the section has all of the victims' names on it. The university also has a scholarship in the victims' names to honor them and their aspirations. I love that. I do too. And investigators in one of the interviews, they were kind of tearing up and they're like, yeah, we remember them every time we pass that wall. Because it looks like it's on like a busy stretch. It looks like kind of like a highway, but it's hard to tell in the pictures. Yeah. And one of them's like, I think about them every time I pass it. I think about what would they be like today? Like, would they have kids? What, what would they be doing? And he's like, it just makes me really sad. Yeah. I mean, it's a horrific case. And there's part of me that like you always want to know the stories behind the movies that you love. But like, I'm glad that I didn't know who this guy was. He's infamous, but he's not like a household name. No, I like that too. And I like that Ghostface kind of took his fame. Yes, that he got replaced. So like it was based on him, but it wasn't him. And it also, in a lot of ways, you could see the senselessness and the slasher, obviously, method of killing was taken from his murders. But like it wasn't so parallel where it was his story. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is interesting about Scream, and you see this a lot with, I feel like, any type of violent media that like there'll be like a series of events where people say that they did it because of XYZ. Or a video game. Yeah, I was thinking Grand Theft Auto. That like when that first came out, people were like, I'm confused because it's a violent video game. And I'm like, you weren't confused. You were. So when we were researching this, one of the things that we found that we were very surprised about was that not only was the movie inspired by a crime, the movie also inspired murders. I hate this part. Yeah, we're going to go through them chronologically. And they're not just in America, which I also thought was interesting. So the first is in 1998. Mario Padilla, who was 16 at the time, stabbed his mother, Gina Castillo, to death using three different knives while his cousin, Samuel Ramirez, held his mother down. God. Yes. And while the pair was murdering Gina, her one-year-old daughter was in the room. That's horrible. Yeah. And so Gina had been saving money to, like, take care of her daughter. Right. And like, obviously, Maria's her son. Like, it's for him, too. But in the articles that I saw, it was like she was putting it away for her future specifically. Padilla and Ramirez said that they had been planning to steal that money from Gina because they wanted to go on a killing spree. They were planning to buy ghost face costumes, an electronic voice modulator like Stu and Billy used. Yeah. And that Padilla and Ramirez had even picked their first five victims. This part is really chilling to me is that one of their classmates looked like Drew Barrymore. So they were planning on killing her first. That's horrible. Horrific. The presiding judge in the murder trial prohibited any mention of the movie in the trial and stated that it should be tried as a regular murder case and that they weren't going to be having a debate about what violent movies do to young minds. Yeah. So there were a lot of debates around that time about watching Scream and whether it had impacts on children. Padilla and Ramirez were tried separately. Padilla was sentenced to life in prison without parole for murder and conspiracy to commit the murder. And Ramirez was sentenced to 25 years. Uh, He needs more. Both were equally bad, right? In this situation, whether you're the person stabbing or you're the person holding them down, you were instrumental in the murder, as far as I'm concerned. So next was the stabbing of 13-year-old Ashley Murray. And this was in January of 1999. So he was attacked in Harrogate, England by two of his classmates named Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller. 
Gil and Fuller convinced Ashley to come with them to an isolated spot. Then they used a screwdriver and a knife to stab him 18 times, and 11 of those stabs were to his head. They then wrapped Ashley in a trash bag and left him for dead. About 40 hours later, a dog walker is walking and finds him. Oh, that's so horrible. Yes. Well, I mean, like, all of it's terrible, right? 40 hours. That's a long time, yeah. That's a long time. And so the boys had been watching Scream that day before they attacked Ashley. It was Gil and Fuller, and one of them had been sketching knives and ghost face in their school notebook. So they were both convicted of attempted murder and served a mere three years out of their six-year sentence. Oh, my. How? Six-year sentence is nothing. Six-year sentence. I always find that interesting with attempted murder, that it can be so cavalier because to me, attempted murder, it's only because you were bad at doing it. You were bad at murdering or somebody was really good at saving. That's why there's no murder. Yeah, because he didn't die. Yes. They just get to keep their lives. Exactly. Yeah. And so Ashley suffered a disability because of the attack, which included paralysis on the left side of his body. See, that counts as murder to me. You killed half of his body. Well, my thing is, it's not even just that. It's that like 11 stabs to the head. No, it makes me mad. But so, of course, he would be affected right long term. So he died at 27 from a car crash where he had been drinking and driving. And I can't help but think like his life would have been completely different if he had never been attacked. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Probably more positive outlook and better choices. Yeah. But also like don't drink and drive. That's a shitbird thing to do. And he had alcohol levels two point time higher than the legal limit. So next is the murder of Alison Cambier from November of 2001. She was just 15 years old when she was murdered by Terry Harding. He was a 25-year-old truck driver that had no history of violent behavior. And so they lived in a small town in Belgium, and Allison was Terry's neighbor. So she stopped by his house to chat and to, like, swap some VHS tapes And some sources say that he made sexual advances. Others say that he professed his love. Either way, she didn't reciprocate. He's nine years older than her. It's highly inappropriate either way. So during this interaction, she's in his house. He leaves the room and he comes back wearing the whole costume from Scream. So he's got the black robe with a ghost face. And I just need to tell you, like the ghost face mask, a little spooky. But the robes I always thought were funny because it has the tatters on the bottom, like the fake tatters. I'm like, interesting. But so when he came back, he also had two giant knives and he stabbed her 30 times. So he then positioned her in his bed and put a rose in her hand. He then called his father and one of his colleagues to confess. When the police arrived, he confessed to murdering her and he said that he had been inspired by Scream and that he had planned out the murder. Fuck this guy. Right. Fuck him. And so there were rumors going around that Allison was in love with Jerry and Jean Jacques, her father, said Allison was not in love with her killer. People are misinterpreting facts and talking to me about a love affair which never existed. Also, why even bring that up? That's not something to bring up. Yeah. Even if she was, it's it's immaterial, right? Because first off, she was a child. So like, even if she didn't have a crush on an adult, like that happens, whatever. It's when it's the reverse that it's messed up. And secondly, it doesn't mean she should get murdered, even if it was true. And it has nothing to do with anything, honestly. Yeah, it really doesn't. I hate it. So then in June of 2002, Alice Vapier was murdered in France. She also was just 15 when her neighbor, who they only released his first name, which was Julian, murdered her. And he was 17. 
So before the crime, he was watching Scream on repeat, which is bizarre, right? Like that's like I enjoy horror movies, but watching the same one on repeat one doesn't sound like an enjoyable time. But it sounds like it would be like it would be tense. So he had told one of his classmates that he wanted to, quote, see what it was like to murder someone. So Alice and Julian knew each other. Julian and Alice went for a walk around their town and they stopped by a cafe for a soda. And they went to the nearby park where they were hanging out when Julian put on the ghost face mask and stabbed Alice 42 times. The prosecution said that Scream gave Julian the, quote, elements necessary to stage the murder. And he was sentenced to 22 years. The elements necessary? Putting on a mask? Yeah, I mean, like, what did he learn from it? He took her to a public place and stabbed her. I mean, I think one of the differences with Scream is that these were popular, normal guys who had girlfriends and just seemed like normal guys. They didn't look like monsters. Sid's boyfriend kind of did, but Lillard did not. Oh, I like that actor. He looks pretty ominous. Oh, but that's just his face, though. Like, they're just like (laughs) handsome young men. (laughs) That's just his face. No, he does look sinister. He has angular features. I see what you're saying. But like, I don't think normally you are like, it's an escaped mental patient or or the goth kid or the goth kid yeah or xyz right like it's these tropes and this is one of the first times where it was like oh they look like your average like kid yeah and so these kids who were like oh wait it could be me i want to see what it's like to murder i don't really think it gave them the elements necessary i think it gave them a visual of what that would look like and that maybe they could get away with it easier because they got away with it pretty easy and scream until they didn't yeah true. And so the last case we're going to talk about is the longest one. It's the murder of Cassie Jo Stoddard on September 22nd of 2006. Isn't that long ago? Really? It really is not. It's really not. For a really old movie is what I'm saying. This was about a decade after it came out. Sequels that are happening and still happening. Yeah. But there's a big jump. Yeah, it's a big jump. And it's also like 10 years. Anyway, so Cassie was pet sitting for her aunt and her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, came over to hang out. And then they also invited two of their other friends, which were Brian Lee Draper and Tori Michael Adamsick. So they're hanging out. About two hours go by and Draper said that he had to leave. And so... He had come with Adam Sick, so Adam Sick left too. Now, unbeknownst to Cassie or Matt, before leaving, Draper unlocked a door at Cassie's aunt's house, which is where she was house-sitting, so that they could get back into the house later. And one of them claims that it was just to scare Cassie. So as far as Cassie and Matt are concerned, Adam Sick and Draper had left. So about 15 minutes after that, the power goes out. Matt calls his mom to see if he could spend the night, and his mom says no. And I would imagine that she holds a lot of guilt. Yeah, but also, he could have also been murdered. This next part makes me, like, very angry. So they're all friends, right? So before they leave, Matt called Adam Sick to tell him he was headed home. So basically that she was alone. Yeah. So Adam Sick was whispering on the other line, and Matt was like, why are you whispering? And he's like, oh, I'm in a movie theater. So after Matt left, Draper and Adam Sick changed the black clothing masks and gloves and brought their knives when they went back into the house. Originally, they went into the basement hoping they would catch her when she went down to check the breaker box because they wanted this like classic horror movie trope kill. Yeah. So when she didn't come down, Adam Sick and Draper went up to the living room and attacked her. Draper said he didn't realize that Adam Sick was actually stabbing Cassie. He thought they were just there to scare her, which we're going to get into in a little bit why he's a fucking liar. Yeah. And even if you didn't think so before, like you brought knives. 
Why did you do that? Right. And no. So Draper originally denied stabbing Cassie, then later said that he only stabbed her so that Adam Sick wouldn't hurt him too. Liar. Yeah. Draper said that he stabbed Cassie four times in the legs and chest because Adam Sick said, you need to stab her. You need to stab her. Draper stabbed Cassie in the leg and Adam said, it's not going to work. She has to die. The next day, Matt and Adam Sick hang out. So Matt kept trying to get a hold of Cassie, but she didn't answer. Now, keep in mind, this all happens on the 22nd of September of 2006. Two days later, her cousin comes back to the house with her family. And her cousin, who I believe is another teenager, finds her body on September 24th. The medical examiner would later determine that Cassie suffered 30 stabs and that she ultimately died from a stab wound to the trunk. So 12 of her stab wounds would have been fatal just by themselves. And the medical examiner determined that there were at least two different knives used. Adam Sick and Draper were some of the last people to see Cassie alive, so they were interviewed very early on. Adam Sick said that he and Draper went to Cassie's aunt's house for a party around 8.30 p.m. and that they left to go see a movie when it was clear there wasn't going to be a party. Then Draper spent the night at Adam Sick's house. In their respective interviews, police asked both Draper and Adam Sick about the movie that they said they had seen. And neither could, like, say anything about it. Couldn't even do it right. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't even occur to them to, like, know what the movie was about. They didn't think any of it through, honestly. Uh -uh. They're just like, oh, we want to do this. Exactly. And then, oh, there's going to be questions? We didn't prepare for that. Yeah. And so before Adam Six's second interview on September 27th, Draper led police to a cache of evidence that had been buried in a local park called Black Rock Canyon. And so in this like container, they found stick matches, a pair of black boots, a pair of blue rubber gloves, a pair of Athletic Works brand fingerless gloves, a melted down hydrogen peroxide bottle, a multicolored mask, a large dagger type knife with a sheath, a silver and black handled knife with a signature of Sloan written on the side, a small dagger type knife with a sheath, a Sony videotape, this videotape that was later repaired and straightened in order to make it playable and so that it could be transcribed. How weird is it that these guys, I, I doubt they knew about the Gainesville murders that inspired Scream. I doubt it. But it was like a full loop around where a tape is used as evidence. Yeah. And so they also found a black handled serrated folding knife. DNA testing would later show that Cassie's blood was on the knife. A partly burned piece of paper with a writing in pencil. And Adam Sick would later admit that the writing on the note was his, a red and white mask that had a partial DNA profile of Adam Sick on it, a single black glove that had DNA from an unknown male, a pair of partially burned black Puma brand gloves, which when they tested them for DNA, Cassie's blood had soaked into them. Oh, no. Yeah. A blue plastic garbage bag, a partially burned black long sleeve Hagger brand dress shirt, a Calvin Klein black dress shirt that had Cassie's blood on the shirt cuff, and then a white and gray sock, as well as a small piece of black cord. The tape is really interesting because it chronicles not just like them planning it, but it's them in the days leading up to the murder and then them after the murder on the same tape. Mm-hmm. There should be no law against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. I was 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. 
we know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all locked. Now we just gotta wait. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I oh just killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh, fuck. That felt like it wasn't real. I mean, it went by so Shut fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. The fact that you could see them building each other into this, that like the toxic masculinity that was bleeding through between the two of them that amped them up to do this. Yeah, it was a hard listen knowing what they had done and just going, oh, my gosh. You always think like, what what do they do right after? Right. Like, I, yeah. I guess that's come through my mind. Like, what do they do? Do they go along on their day like normal? Like what happens? And this gives you a look at like how amped and how excited they were. And it's chilling. I agree. So Draper said that the day he was interviewed, Adam Sick had threatened to kill him if he told police what had happened. Police would later find out that Adam Sick asked his friend, 18-year-old Joe Lucero, to buy the knives for him. So that's where they got those from. And police conducted Adam Sick's second interview after they had found this cache of evidence. And so he says that, like, oh, I left Cassie's aunt's house and that they had tried to break into some cars. And then they went to Adam Sick's house. And that the reason why they said the, the lie about the movies was because they didn't want to be in trouble for trying to break into cars. Mm. Weird lie. So police were able to talk to witnesses who put Draper and Adam Sick at a convenience store when he said that he was going through cars. Got it. And so when they pointed this out, he started backtracking. So after police told Adam Sick about all of the evidence that they had uncovered, he got a lawyer. And it's interesting, too, that in the court documents I read, there's also discussions because they're minors, right? So Adam Sick has his father sitting next to him. And his father's just learning all about this about his son, right? So he's processing this in real time. And he's like, did you do this? Oh, gosh. He's like, he's processing it like a person who's hearing this terrible thing. Could my son do this? Yeah. yeah could my son do this? And so he's like, did you do this? And like, my heart breaks for him a little bit because he's coming to terms with the fact that his kid's a monster. So both Adam Sick and Draper were charged and convicted of the murder of Cassie and conspiracy to commit murder and were sentenced to life in prison without parole. So on appeal, Draper's conviction for conspiracy was vacated, but they affirmed his murder conviction. So his life in prison without parole sentence didn't change. Good. Adam Sick's appeals were denied, so he filed a habeas corpus petition. And we've talked about that before, but it's basically you're arguing that your punishment is unconstitutional and you have to, like, go through all of your state remedies first before you do it. So it's like it's a last ditch effort as far as I'm concerned. So in his petition, he questioned the validity of the previous denials of his appeals and brought up the Supreme Court sentencing precedent that had changed since his conviction. And so from the brief reading that I did, it looks like the Supreme Court has ruled that it's unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life in prison without parole, even for murder. Um, okay. And from what I understand, at this point, there's not a mechanism for automatic relief. So the once juvenile, possible juvenile still, defendant has to file something to trigger the review of the sentencing. Adam Six Rick was denied. And I think that the most disgusting part of this is that their motive was to get famous. What the fucking fuck? No, no. Yeah. Let Ghostface be famous. You're not famous. Yeah, you're just a shitbird. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's crazy that one movie can inspire this. And also, it's a movie. It shouldn't, just like you said with like the video game, it should not confuse people on what is right versus wrong. Yeah, it shouldn't confuse your morality. But I will say, like, I think seeing the imagery of something you already want to do or you're already you've got a, like a predilection for seeing it might make it more likely that you'll do it. But it's not the reason. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. So what's also interesting is that in addition to these murders, there's also been a lot of crimes committed where people were wearing the ghost face mask. Gosh, there's been carjackings. There's been robbers. There's been home invaders. There's been, I want to think, bank robberies. There's random shootings and just very bizarre. They're all wearing the ghost mask. And it's, it's a little bit infamous now. Yeah. Well, it's easy to find. Like, it's easy to get. You can go to any store that sells Halloween stuff and get that mask. Yeah. And it's a mask where no one's going to look at you funny if you own it or have it or any of those things because it's a Halloween costume. Halloween costume. And yeah, if you like the movie. Yeah. And so we wanted to know more about the mask. We thought it was from The Scream by Evan Munch. Yeah. But originally, Wes Craven said that he was inspired by a mask that he had saw when he was shopping. But he later corrected himself and said that, no, it was his producer, uh, Marianne Madalena, who was on location scouting a house in California for a different movie when she found a mask that was titled The Peanut-Eyed Ghost, which is made by Fun World, which is a mask producer. And the house that they were looking at was actually in a Hitchcock movie, which is just interesting. So they were like, okay, we'll work with Fun World Mask Company to license the mask to use for the movie. And it became clear that they knew how important the mask was to the movie. So Fun World had a very high licensing fee and producers were like, no, we'll just we'll make a mask of our own. So the mask was inspired by the Fun World mask. It was also inspired by the Scream and the album cover of Pink Floyd's The Wall. And they shot the opening scene with that mask. After that point, Fun World came down their price with Dimension Films, which is the production company, and they made an agreement to use the mask for the rest of the movie. So there's actually two different masks in the movie, in the original Scream. Oh. Yeah. And they're just, it's just slightly different enough. Yeah. But I was like, huh, I, I didn't realize that. And I also, like, it never occurred to me, like, where it came from. No, that's, that's just nuts. And so much out of one silly movie, really. Yeah. It's a good movie. It's a solid movie. It's a great slasher, in my opinion. Yeah, I love it. It's one of my Halloween movies that I watch most years. Yeah. Let us know what you're watching. We want to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. Is Scream on your list? Is this one of your top Halloween movies? If so, did you know that it was based off of the Gainesville Ripper? Yeah. Tag us in your Halloween movie post. We want to talk to you about them all the time. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 